Welcome to Star Talk All Stars, live from the Explorers Club in New York City. I'm your host, David Grinspoon. I'm an astrobiologist and a senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Funky Spoon. And our topic today is meteorites how to find them, what we can learn from them about the origin and the future of life on Earth and elsewhere in the universe. My co-host is my good friend and Star Talk veteran comedian Chuck Nice. Hey, Dr. Funky Spoon. Hey, Chuck. And you can find Chuck on Twitter at Chuck Nice. Sorry, Chuck Nice Comic. Yes. Rolls off the tongue. It Chuck Nice does. Comic. It's yes. My name and what I do, so it's pretty easy. I like that. Yes. Uh, Thank God I'm not a proctologist. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been awkward. <laughs> yes, you would have had to come up with a different handle yeah, then. Without a doubt. Yeah. And don't say handle and proctologist. All right. <laughs> Moving <laughs> right along. We have with us today a very special guest, meteorite hunter Jeff Notkin. Yay. Greetings, gentlemen. My yeah. face is already hurting from laughing at you two. <laughs> uh, we're, so, we're so happy to have you here, Jeff. Jeff is a longtime member of the Explorers Club. He's hosted three seasons of Meteorite Men for Science Channel, and he's the author of Meteorite Hunting, How to Find Treasure from Space. And hopefully, without having to read the book, he's going to tell us how to find treasure from space today. Yeah. Although, I want you to read the book, don't get me wrong. Um, Jeff, uh, it's, such a, it's such a cool thing that you do. You're a meteorite hunter. It's the kind of thing that, you know, a kid, when you ask them what they want to be when they grow up, before they know better, they might say, I'm going to be a meteorite hunter. But you, you do it. You're, you're a grown man, and this is what you do. It's, it sounds like a fantasy existence. Tell us, how did you get started being a meteorite man? What, what got you into this? There's no need to be mean and call me a grown man. I, I'm, I'm a very childish person and, and very irresponsible. Most I'm going of the time. on first impressions oh, here. Oh, you okay. look like oh, a grown man. Well, yeah, I'm wearing a meteorite tie, so you can tell that I'm a serious, serious person. Thank you very much for the compliment, though. I've been fascinated by meteorites since I was a kid. And as is the case with so many things, when you, you experience life a little bit, it's very easy to look back and just blame your parents for everything. And I like to do that, subscribe to that. My dad was an amateur astronomer. My, my poor mother was very supportive of my interest, nay, some might say obsession with rock hounding, and I just didn't want to go to school. I liked my parents. I liked the museums. So I, I'm fond of saying that I grew up in the Geological Museum in London, and I would go there with my mom when I was a little boy, and I can see in my head those curators looking and sort of shaking their head like, oh God, here comes that woman with that annoying little boy again who's going to ask all the <laughs> questions about the dinosaurs and the meteorites. But really, it was, a, it was a wonderful environment and I've always been fascinated by museums. That's where I first saw space rocks. And I had this inherent interest in astronomy because of my dad. It's, it's, it's easy now to understand why I didn't do very well at school because my dad's favorite thing was to wake me up in the middle of the night and, and carry me out to the garden, this kind of little squirming kid in a blanket, and hold me up to the telescope so I, I could look through up at the night sky. And he'd go, look, Jeffrey, you're, you're looking at alien worlds in space. So that's some of my earliest memories of childhood is, is having my sleep disturbed, taken out to the freezing cold in England and told that I'm looking at essentially an alternative existence in space. Well, is any, no wonder you love exactly. astronomy. <laughs> well, and no wonder I have a weird job. I mean, look, yeah. look how I started. So I had, It's better than uh, my dad, who used to just wake me up, take me out in the freezing cold, and leave. <laughs> but they say that builds character, though. I mean, you seem like a very confident gentleman now. This is so, true, yes. You know, it, you're a survivor. It did have its benefits, yes. Character being one of them. <laughs> Didn't kill you, it made you stronger. Right. <laughs> So there, there, was, there was the seed, and then uh, I love science fiction. I've been a space flight enthusiast my whole life. Another reason I didn't do well at school is anytime there was anything to do with space flight, I would implore my parents to send a note to school saying that little Jeffrey had to stay home. And this is England in the 1960s and 1970s. And, and I should say, my parents were Americans. They were, they were transplanted Americans. I, I grew up a very English boy in, in the UK with very bizarre American parents. And it wasn't really done to send a note to your super stuffy, stuck-up British school and say, dear headmaster, little Jeffrey's staying home to watch the space program. 
it made me even more ostracised at school because the boys would go, oh, did you know that Notkin let him, that Notkin's parents let him stay home to watch the space programme? That's so weird. But that's, that's the truth. Jealous much? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, but look at you now. <laughs> yes, if only my teachers were still alive so I could humiliate them further. <laughs> yeah. Well, so uh, it, it, it worked out rather well from, from such humble beginnings. Uh, now, now, now you actually are a meteorite hunter. And that conjures up all kinds of things. But, I mean, let, let's talk a little bit about how, how you go about that. I mean, you don't just like get up in the morning and walk outside your house and walk down the street and look for rocks and go, oh, I wonder if any of these come from space. I mean, no wonder I mean, I'm a maybe, failure at this. Maybe you Are do. Are you sure? But, <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know. But, but uh, t- tell us, I mean, how do, you, how do you figure out where you should go and look? There are a number of different tactics that we would use, David, and perhaps the most readily apparent is when there's a, far, a fireball witnessed overhead. So fireball is a large meteor, which is different from meteorite. Potential meteorites hurtling through the atmosphere, incandescing, forms a trail, and when, when it's large enough can be witnessed by many people, and you'll remember from news stories particularly going back to Russia and Chelyabinsk in 2013, a large fireball might be witnessed by thousands of people. And in the old days, we used to go, oh, fireball report in Russia or Canada or wherever the heck it was. And we'd go and we'd just stumble around in the wilderness for days or weeks and try and find something. But now we use technology to assist. And one of the most effective methods is Doppler radar. Hmm. And when a meteorite breaks up, potential meteorite breaks up in the atmosphere, often rains down in pieces. And it, it's surprising when you think about this fact. What you saw in the movie Armageddon, which I love, by the way, even mm. though the science is a bit wacky, it's a great film. When meteorites hit the Earth, they're not flaming fireballs that crash into Grand Central Station. No matter how tremendous that might look on film, the, the burning period of potential meteorites ends while they're still miles up. So then they just fall like rocks. So they're actually quite hard to track, but Doppler radar can catch that fall pattern. And so we might narrow it down to a few miles and a few square miles. And you might go, well, that sounds easy. It's narrowed down to a few square miles. And that's what I always think in my head. Well, we've got it narrowed down to a few square miles. How hard can it be? And you go there and it's swamp or the ocean or a top secret military installation or their dogs or rattlesnakes or hornets or all of the above. And then Ultimately, it just ends up with boots on the ground, hiking around looking for strange rocks that look out of place. So that's number one, fireball chasing. Number two is going to places where we just think the odds are good for finding them. And let me clarify that meteorites fall randomly over the entire surface of the Earth. So right away that says, whoops, most of them in the ocean, goodbye, unless, you know, US Navy, maybe we can work out something later. So we want to go to places where the chances of seeing them are better. And that means deserts, open spaces, without plants, without terrestrial rocks, if possible. And we call that cold hunting. We just just randomly go out in the desert or somewhere that we think might be good. And that requires a lot of patience. My favorite technique number three is to look at places where meteorites have been found in the past, in historical records, newspaper articles, scientific papers. You go, ah, oh, look, big meteorite was found here in the 1800s. Let's go back with better tech and see if we can locate pieces that have been missed. Mm. And that has been the most successful in my career. Plus, I'm a gearhead. So any opportunity to build a giant metal detector or use ground-penetrating radar or drones or just anything else that looks cool will definitely do it. And and when we were doing the Meteorite Men show and our producer said, Jeff, just pick something that you'd really like to have on the show that would be great for meteorite hunting. So where do I go in my head? Thunderbirds. Because I grew up on Thunderbirds, <laughs> British sci-fi kids show from the 1960s. So what do I want? Instead of asking for something practical, I asked for an amphibious vehicle. Because if you could have an amphibious vehicle just to play with, why not? And then I realized after I got that, oh, God, actually, the worst thing you could ask for for meteorite hunting, because meteorites are rich in iron, so if they fall in the water, they're going to decompose, so you wouldn't look in the water for meteorites with an amphibious vehicle, but who cares, because I got to drive one, Yeah, it looks great on camera. So now your descriptions have left me with a burning question. Is that Uh, burning like the fireball? Almost, yeah. 
Which is a better movie, Deep Impact or Armageddon? I am absolutely an Armageddon fan. I, I just I just love that film. I think I think it's highly entertaining. It's a great script. There's so many good lines in it. Uh, like many Hollywood films, the science is is a bit wacky, but <laughs> ditto for Star Trek, and I love Star Trek, so Yes, for well, me. I'm glad. Oh, we're... are you a Deep Impact fan? No, I'm just oh. saying Star Trek. Don't I love Star yeah. Trek? Oh no, yeah. I love Star Trek. Yeah, I watch, just mean watch just what mean... you say about Trek around. No, no, here. you but... you will have a hard time finding someone who loves Star Trek more than me. Okay, I just mean we have to look at the science and go. Well, transporters. I don't. Know. You know that they're they're tech hey, heads. Man, that it's will... the 23rd century. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, um, back to meteorites for, for just a second, if we could. Um, it, so you're out there looking a lot you must find all kinds of stuff including you must have found some weird stuff that's not meteorites and so i i have i have a two-part question actually one is like what's the weirdest thing you found that you thought was a meteorite and then wasn't a meteorite and then related question because i used to work in a science museum um and people would bring us stuff all the time and said i think i found a meteorite and a lot of times sorry chuck they were meteor wrongs uh, <laughs> they weren't meteorites and so this must you must have had loads of people bring you stuff or point you towards stuff what's the weirdest thing that somebody thought was a meteorite um but wasn't can we do shows on a regular basis you guys are so much fun and those are those are tremendous questions all right i'm gonna i'm gonna answer the weirdest meteor wrong first that was brought to me so I am CEO of a commercial meteorite company, Aerolite Meteorites, and I've been doing this for 25 years. And then there's the Meteorite Men television show. So a lot of people have seen me in one place or another talking about meteorites, which I am quite keen on them. Some would say obsessed. I think keen is better. <laughs> and so over the years, thousands of people have contacted me and said, Jeff, I found a strange rock in my driveway or on my roof or in the dog kennel. It must be a meteorite. I must bring it and show it to you. Please keep the dog kennel one to yourself. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's a bit unsavory. <laughs> not for, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> not for a PG audience. My favorite, my favorite story happened year before last at the German Mineral Show in Tucson. And my company sets up for two weeks. We exhibit we show meteorites, we buy, sell, trade meteorites, and, and we also educate. And people always come to show strange things they found. So year before, before last, a young man comes into the showroom, very nice young guy, ball cap, big backpack, and he, he comes in and he's a little bit shy and he goes, comes up, introduces himself, and he goes, oh, hello, Mr. Notkin, uh, my name's Fred, and I'm a big fan of your show, and I think I found a meteorite. Can I, can I show you? And I said, sure. And let me say that I feel it's my fault that a lot of people are interested in meteorites now. I, I take full responsibility. We did this wacky show, and now people go out hiking or walking the dog or whatever, and they find weird stuff, and they want me to look at it. So it would be a bit rude for me to go, no, I'm not going to look at it. That's just mean. Nobody likes that guy. So I always try to be understanding. So the young guy comes in, takes his backpack off, unzips it, pulls out a pretty significant boulder, puts it on the desk, and I look at it, and it's magnetite. And magnetite is a relatively common terrestrial iron oxide. But it's heavy and it's dark and a magnet will stick to it. So these are all hopeful indicators for possible meteorite. So I look at it and I say to him, I'm sorry, uh, it's, it's not a meteorite. And uh, the, the look of disappointment on his face, it was just like his face went, oh, no, really? So I explained why it was not a meteorite. And I, he was such a nice guy. I gave him a little meteorite and said, You've got a good eye and you should keep looking when you're out hiking. This is what you're looking for. Okay, great. Thanks very much. So puts it in his backpack and off he goes. And I felt like, oh, I did my good deed for the day. And about 10 minutes later, a girl comes into the showroom with a, with a shopping bag, plastic bag from the supermarket. And she goes, hi, I'm a fan of your show, Meteorite Man. Uh, can I show you a rock that I found that I think is a meteorite? And I go, oh, wow, another one already. Yeah, sure. Come on. So... Same thing, takes it out of the bag, puts it on the counter, and it's the same rock <laughs> that I've just looked at. <laughs> and so I said to her, oh, are you friends with the nice young guy with the backpack and the ball cap, Fred? And she goes, yeah, yeah, he's my boyfriend. And I said, oh, he's a super nice guy. He was in here just 10 minutes ago. I already looked at the rock. And she goes, yeah, I, I know. 
And I said, well, did you not see him? Because I told him that it's not a meteorite. And she goes, no, no, I, I know. <laughs> so you saw Fred and he told you that I told you that it's not a meteorite, but you brought it back into the showroom anyway. And she goes, yes, we decided we just really wanted a second opinion. <laughs> so of course i said i'd be glad to but it doesn't really count if you get two opinions from the same person you really need to take it to a different person to get a second opinion it's like going back to the same doctor and saying i wanted a second opinion. are you sure i'm really sick because i feel fine All right, so that was, that was one of the most entertaining media wrongs that was brought to me. Media wrongs in the field, well, I've got quite a few good ones, but I suppose the most memorable was when we were filming season two of Meteorite Men. There was a spectacular fireball that was seen over Salt Lake City, and we got video footage, we got excellent Doppler radar, we knew almost precisely where it landed. And if, if you think of the, the flat, hard salt pan out there, it's where a lot of racing is done. It's probably something that, that our host Jim Clash is very familiar with. It's the best possible meteorite hunting surface because it's, yeah, it's white flat. And it's exactly. Flat and it's very, white. very light colored. Right. And we're looking for dark, dark, out of place rocks that have fallen in the middle of this. Unfortunately for us, they fell right in the middle of the Dugway Proving Ground, which is nicknamed Area 52 by the military. And it's a top secret military testing ground that was the brainchild of Eisenhower. And it goes back to World War II. So we eventually got onto the base and we went quite far. We had an armed escort of, of Marines with us and two unexploded ordnance experts and the admin director of all of Dugway. And we went out to the edge of the, the, the area that we, we thought was prime hunting ground. And we were given this really severe talk. And they go, do not touch anything at all on the ground. Don't touch anything. And if any drones come over, we don't just want the cameras turned off. They have to be turned off and on the ground. So you're not touching them. We've got test drones out here. And then we go up onto the berm that heads out onto the flat. And the head of admin goes, oh, there's one more thing. You can't look south. <laughs> and, and I said, sorry, did you say we can't, we can't film anything to the south? She goes, no, you can't look to the south. So we weren't, we weren't allowed to, yeah. So we're, so we're walking around. Dana. What was in the South? Share? I mean, <laughs> some top secret. Uh, I don't know what. So we went as far as we could, and then the ordnance expert guys go, even we don't go further than this. There's all kinds of scary, unexploded stuff out here, nerve gas. I, I don't even know. And then Steve, my co host, nobody's looking, he walks up to me, comes up to me with this really bizarre thing in his hand. He goes, Hey, Jeff, look at this. And I go, Steve, what is that? And he goes, I don't know. I, I, found, I found it. Over there. And I go, did you not pay attention when all the armed guys were saying you're not allowed to touch anything? You're definitely not allowed to pick anything up. And he goes, Oh, well, I, I thought that was, you know, bomb parts. Yeah. Well, how do you how do you know what is and isn't a bomb part out here on a top secret experimental testing range? So we were escorted off. Well, when then, you lose your arm, you know you yeah, got it right. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Trial and error. Yeah. <laughs> well, he still had another arm left. <laughs> exactly. One more chance. <laughs> so, so we didn't. We weren't able to get to the spot we wanted. So we we left the two of us. We got in a truck, pickup truck, and we start driving around the perimeter of the base. And I'm in the back of the truck, and he's driving. And we, the truck slows down. I'm standing in the back with these binoculars, scanning around, trying to look for any strange rocks. And we slow down, and he, and he yells out. He goes, hey, Jeff, look at this. And I look over the side of the truck, and there's a massive warhead lying there, massive, much, much bigger than a person. So we stop the truck, and I go, gosh, I've really seen everything now. And we get out, and we walk up to it, and we took all these photos of us standing next to this gigantic bomb. It was so cool. And then we, we GPSed it, and off we went. And then Steve goes, you know, we should probably report that to the Air Force. And go, yeah, yeah, okay. So we, we reported it to the Air Force, and they, the intelligence officer that we spoke to said, oh, thanks very much for, for reporting that. That's pretty, pretty serious. And uh, you didn't go anywhere near it, did you? 
And we go, no, no, of course not. And, 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 and in, in my book, Meteorite Hunting, that you mentioned, there's a photograph of me and there's this giant, 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 giant warhead and I'm next to it like this. <laughs> An inch away from it. So I go, nah, of course we didn't go near it. We're not stupid. <laughs> We're professional meteorite hunters, very responsible guys. And he goes, oh, good, good. Yeah, yeah, because those things are dangerous. And then at the end of the conversation, I said, you know, just... FYI, in case we run into another one of these things in the future, why would you not go near one? And he said, well, from your description, it sounds like unexploded Vietnam-era ordnance, and they've got these sensors in the, in the nose, and if you had two big guys clumping up in combat boots with pickaxes and everything else like us, they're so sensitive it could set the thing off, and we could have been blown into a million pieces and never be able to do... Startup Radio All Stars. Oh my God, that that would indeed be quite the epic media wrong. To, <laughs> but to it that. would have been yeah. the most awesome episode of Media Right Man ever. Yeah, I mean, it would have been memorable, but not the way you want to be remembered. Probably that that is a great story. We're going to take a break now, um, and we'll be right back with more Star Talk All Stars Five. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars, live from the Explorers Club. I'm David Grinspoon here with my co-host Chuck Nice. Hey, Dr. Funky Spoon. And we're talking space rocks with meteorite hunter Jeff Notkin. And um, so many questions. Uh, it's not often you get to pick the brain of a meteorite hunter here. Let's talk a little bit about what we learn from meteorites. Hmm. Uh, you, we've been talking about how you go about finding them and some foibles you've had in the effort to find them. But, I mean, it's all about uh, the meteorites themselves and what they can tell us about uh, the origin of life, the origin of the solar system. Um, let, let's, let's go there a little bit. Um, let's, let's talk about... Um, about origin of life. How, what's the connection between things that we find on Earth that have fallen down from the sky and what we know about how life got started on Earth? As you know, David, there's a popular theory that the necessary ingredients for the formation of life on Earth may have been brought here on meteorites. And a, a question that I'm frequently asked is, do I think that life hitched a ride here on meteorites? We know for a fact that some meteorites that have landed on Earth contain water, salt, carbon, amino acids. That, that's not supposition. This has been shown numerous times. So most meteorites come to us from the asteroid belt, some from the Moon and Mars, but most from asteroids. So that tells us that some asteroids, at least, are rich in these materials, and, and there's water and carbon and other useful, other things that are useful to life on these asteroids. So it's certainly possible that life was seeded on our planet by these things. It's also certainly possible that it, it, life came into existence here without assistance from elsewhere. And as one of the reasons we love science is that there's a healthy debate on that and many other topics. But when you say seeded, I mean, that gives us the image of actual seeds, like little uh, organisms coming to Earth. But even without that, it's quite possible that the stuff that life was made out of, the carbon, the nitrogen, the oxygen, uh, was uh, uh, that uh, some essential ingredients for life came here um, on meteorites. Indeed. And the, the seeds that you're talking about, that was they, the Triffids, that, uh, that brought, <laughs> that's brought right. the plant seeds for, for you classic sci-fi fans. My personal view is that if that material came into existence on asteroids, it probably did here as well. And since we have found numerous meteorites, probably from numerous different asteroids that have similar uh, materials in them, it is possible or likely that water and carbon and these other ingredients occur at many other places in the solar system, which is very exciting because if then you, you extrapolate that to many other solar systems, mm -hmm. we can suppose that conditions might be similar elsewhere. And is it possible, I mean, uh, Dr. Funky Spoon, you're an astrobiologist, so is it possible that due to an impact, say on another planet, you have the detritus that leaves that planet uh, and actually lands here on Earth, could that also be like, you know, uh, carrying the, the biological necessities to create life here? Yeah, well, I mean, we know that rocks get splashed between planets. Mm -hmm. 
we've got pieces of Mars here on Earth, that, okay. uh, uh, meteorites from Mars. And um, presumably that means that there are chunks of Earth that have landed on Mars and landed on Venus and maybe even got ejected farther out. And um, Wouldn't it be cool if it was just... It was like really just life swapping, like, you know, like all the planets are life swapping, like something from Earth lands on Mars and then something from Mars lands back on Earth. And when it's all done, it's just like, well, what do you know? We human beings. Planets are swingers. Planets are swingers. (laughs) No, they they they, I mean, you know, especially er, early in the solar system, there was a lot more exchange, right? Because things were smashing into the planets all the time before the solar system sort of settled down. So that young solar system uh, was young and wild. (laughs) <laughs> and liberated. Um, no, I mean, and and one thing we've learned uh, in astrobiology about uh, microbes is how hard they are to kill some microbes. So it, it, it's not hard to imagine that something would survive that trip. So um, that's another wrinkle in this whole origin of life and meteorites thing is that maybe it's easier to transfer life than to form life on a planet. So maybe it, it forms on one planet and, and spreads to other ones. Um, is there I, is there a way when you are hunting... Uh, how? Okay, so you said like Mars. We have chunks of Mars here on Earth. I'm sure we have chunks of the Moon here on Earth. And so, when do you know exactly what you have when you find it, or is there, or do you have to go analyze it? And and what would be the differences? It's a bit of both, Chuck. And there are certain meteorite types. The more abundant meteorite types that we find on Earth are readily recognizable to someone who has expertise in this field. The most abundant type are called chondrites. They come to us from the from the surface regions of asteroids, and they are, are by and large fairly similar in composition to Earth rocks. But most meteorites have a little to a lot of iron mm. in them. So I'm out meteorite hunting. I find something. It's it's an it's an uh, an iron meteorite would come from the core of an asteroid. A chondrite, stony iron, uh, a, st- a stony meteorite, most frequently from the surface of the asteroid. And then we have this third type, the stony irons, mysterious and beautiful two forms, palisites created in the core mantle boundary of asteroids. And they're about 50% olivine, which is the gemstone peridot. And then mesosiderites, another stony iron. They were thought to be related in the early days of meteorite science. And now we see that they're different. And we think mesosiderites were formed perhaps when two asteroids with different compositions crashed into each other and smushed themselves together and the resulting debris finds its way to Earth. So in most cases, when I find something, I can go, oh yeah, it's an iron, it's a palisade, I can see the crystals, it's a chondrite, I can see the little tiny glassy spheres inside that tell me what it is. But if we find a lunar meteorite like the one that I brought to the Explorers Club today for oh, wow. show and tell. Wow, oh, look wow. at that. For those of you listening on the internet, thank you, sir. Jeff has just casually picked up this beautiful rock that actually comes from the moon. Wow. Wow. And, it's, uh, I, I, and you're right, it is beautiful. Now, I noticed that one side is, first of all, how much is this worth? This is a piece of the moon I'm holding, right? Oh, really a lot. Uh, really a lot. Like super nice car or oh, a small house in Kansas. A small house in Kansas. Chuck, if yeah. you have to ask, you can't afford it. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I don't eat at McDonald's. Um, Actually, let me rephrase that. Nice house in Kansas. A nice house yeah. in Kansas. So I noticed that one part is polished. And why is that? Um, and how does that, this, is that, was that, of course, I'm sure that was done after it was found, right? That's, or was this sliced? No, the aliens serve the hors d'oeuvres on the... <laughs> Flat polished. <laughs> That'd be pretty wild if a rock just came from the moon with one polished side. That right. Was, yeah. No, it, uh, well observed, Chuck. So this is, you're looking at half of the piece that oh, was found. Gotcha. So the, the exterior is as found, and then it's been cut, cut in the lab and polished on a diamond lap to show the interior, right. which is a, a variety of different minerals. And it's, it's known as a regolith breccia. And a breccia is a rock that's made up of pieces of other rocks that have, that have been crushed or cemented together. Cool. So we're, we're seeing part of what was most likely the surface of the moon. Right. And to properly answer your question, David, this is a very difficult type of meteorite to identify. And while I can tell you the composition, uh, at least basic composition of most meteorites that I would find, something like this would definitely go to the lab for analysis. But you would recognize it as a meteorite. 
because it would have a fusion crest or because it would have an unusual density or I mean is it is there a danger if a meteorite was so exotic that you might go oh that's not a meteorite and miss something really important most definitely and that is a very good observation and there are a number of stories in the meteorite world of colleagues of mine who are brilliant and very well versed in meteorites being shown a strange rock and going, nah, nah, that's not a meteorite. And then the- I mean the, the the Mars the Mars meteorites, which are very rare and obviously very important, are not like most other meteorites, right? They're basalts. Correct. Uh, and so, L- so largely. So um if you find one of those, would you go, oh that's not a meteorite, it's a basalt? <laughs> it would be very easy to make a mistake. Hmm. And and some of our colleagues in academia and I have had this discussion many times that we think there must be a lot of lunar and Martian meteorites out there and we just don't see them because they're mixed in with terrestrial rocks. And the fusion crust that you mentioned is formed when the exterior gets toasted, when it, when it hurtles through the atmosphere. And fusion crust is delicate. So if it lies out in the desert or in a rainy environment, particularly like London where I grew up, meteorites are not going to be happy with the moist environment, foggy old London. So they'll decompose quickly, hmm. relatively quickly. Yeah. So yes, it is quite easy to make a mistake and whenever we're in doubt, we'll send something to the lab. And there are field tests that we do. You can sometimes put your mind at ease and go, oh, it's definitely this or it's definitely that. So could you just, for the benefit of someone who is a layperson, as me, like myself, um, when you pick this up, what are the determining characteristics that would make you say, I've got to take this to be tested? Because I'm looking at this, and although there are some interesting characteristics like, you know, the coloration, the striations, the different types of um, little uh, bespeckled portions down at the bottom here, it looks like a rock. And <laughs> by God, I mean, you're right, sir. I mean, I'm looking at a rock. So, like, what would make me say, oh my God, this is a small house in Kansas? I, <laughs> I gotta take this to the lab. <laughs> it, would be, it would be quite good if you went to the meteorite house exchange and you could go, oh, right. what kind of house can I get for this meteorite? Exactly. I'll take a split level, please. Thank you. I'll be paying in rock. <laughs> I. It's it's a it's a very useful question, and I think it would be more helpful to to give some characteristics of more abundant meteorite types. So okay. what people would be looking for if you're out and you're hiking or you're rock hounding, you're walking the dog. Go well. Oh, oh, I was listening to you know I was listening to Star Talk Radio All Stars, and I'm going to put the knowledge that I acquired to use. So you're looking for dark, heavy rocks that, in almost all cases, will attract to a magnet. Now, the lunar meteorite that you're holding, Chuck, is low in iron, which is very, very, very rare in meteorites. Right. And that would be because of the way the moon was formed, right? I mean, for the most part, right? Astrobiologists? Absolutely, yeah. uh, When when the moon formed from this big smash of of a a Mars-sized object hitting Earth, it it turned into vapor. And a lot of the heavy elements, therefore, are missing. Oh, cool. Um, Yeah. So almost all meteorites are rich in iron and will Uh stick to a powerful magnet. Don't use a fridge magnet. Get a good (laughs) magnet. And you are typically looking for a dark surface. So the fusion crust was caused by superheating in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And even if they've been on the Earth for a long time and the fusion crust has weathered, still usually much darker than Earth rocks. Okay. And you mentioned the density. The iron that is so prevalent in most meteorites will make a meteorite, in most cases, feel heavier than it should. So you pick it up and go, gosh, it seems really, ah, really heavy. Right. Like almost like cannonball heavy. Cool. Cool. So is there a, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, That's all right. I'm, Go for it, Chuck. I'm, 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 it's like my own personal show now. I'm just like, ooh, tell me more. Um, so is there a fool's gold version of this, uh, the oh, moon rock or the gosh. meteor? What right. an excellent question. I was once asked if I was a superhero, what would my nemesis be? Hmm. And the answer is magnetite. Ah. Magnetite is the earth rock that is most frequently mistaken for meteorites. And the young man in the story who came to visit Aerolite Meteorites at the gem show mm-hmm. brought magnetite. So it's a, it's a heavy, dense, dark rock that adheres to a magnet in most cases. Oh. 
And why couldn't you have magnetite form in an asteroid? Is it, is it that, uh, I mean, why couldn't you have a meteorite made out of magnetite? Is there something very specific about geological processes on Earth that make magnetite that you wouldn't expect in an asteroid? Nature's cruel trick. <laughs> magnetite <laughs> from outer space. That's, maybe that, that, maybe that kid was right. <laughs> well, and that's another thing that we get quite often is someone will bring us a rock and I'll look at it and I'll go, oh, good try, but it's not a meteorite. And they'll go, huh, well, I think it's one of those really rare meteorite types that's never been found before, which is, which is not the case. <laughs> well, probably. <laughs> probably. And, and how many times in science has someone said with great certainty, the human body could never survive speeds of more than 30 miles per hour without exploding. <laughs> so, yes, we do, need, we do need to keep open minds. But magnetite is an iron oxide, and so it likes oxygen. There you go. And that would be the key. And yeah. well, that's another, but another really good indicator is most meteorites are also rich in nickel. And pure nickel is rare on Earth. Nickel is found on Earth, but the purity that we find in meteorites is extremely unusual on Earth. Yeah. So, so there are a number of different indicators. And also surface features are, are, are a big, uh, big clue for us. And we're, we're frequently brought volcanic rocks. And as you know, when a, when a molten material cools on Earth, gas escapes from it, forming little holes that are called vesicles. And we typically do not see vesicles in meteorites. So if you find a strange-looking rock out somewhere in the boonies, and there are all little tiny holes in it like you would see in lava... It's almost certainly not a meteorite. Unless, unless it's from Mars. Unless it's, for, <laughs> unless it's from Mars. But, but even so, but, but think about this. Even, so the Martian rocks, which are, are often basaltic, as, as you said earlier, when they, when they blast through our atmosphere, the surface melts. Right. And so they... So it's they, not going to have vesicles on the surface. Oh, right. God. Yeah. Well, hey, that's really cool. Look at yeah. this. I am ready to leave here and go find some doggone meteorites, man. Excellent. Another convert to yeah. the meteorite army. You should. All right. The, the, the next show, Chuck's going to bring us what he found, and we'll, yeah. we'll, and, we'll evaluate them. And he'll tell me, you need to take this back to the kennel where you got it. Yeah, exactly. All right. You said well, you weren't going to tell the dog story. <laughs> yeah, you can't resist. We're, we're going to take a, a, another uh, short break here, um, but we'll be back uh, very shortly with some more Star Talk All-Stars. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. We've been talking about meteorites and their potential role in seeding life on Earth or, or elsewhere. Um, but as we know, meteorites uh, bringeth life, but they also can bringeth death. Um, you've heard the story about the dinosaurs and their friends. It's not always happy when meteorites land on earth uh let's discuss that let's discuss the danger of meteorites um and uh what's happened in the past when big ones have hit and whether we have to worry about that in the future do you worry about that i mean i know you think about it but like does it keep you up at night jeff worrying about um an impact Rarely, and I find myself balanced on a, a strange precipice here, because, of course, I want there to be meteorite impacts on Earth so I can go collect more meteorites, and I want them to be significant enough that they produce nice meteorites that would be wonderful and collectible, but I don't want them to produce an impact that was so gigantic I would be completely vaporized and not able to go search for the pieces. So, you know, it's a delicate line yeah, to walk down, yeah. down there. But So the, the one that, that, uh, that was very recent in Russia that made all the news, first of all, how big was that? And secondly, did they find it? The... The meteorite event that you were referring to, Chuck, was Chelyabinsk. Chelyabinsk, and it was 2013. And, and so I remember the, the biggest thing was there were a lot of injuries because people came to the windows to see what this event was because the sky was lit up. Because the, there was a flash. Right, there was a flash. Before the before shock, shock wave. Yeah. Which and is a then, bad combination. And then poof, and you know the shock wave, of course, blew out a lot of windows. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know if that... If, if if that event was you know pretty you know pretty significant, how what the, what was the size of that rock? Because if it was small, I'm I'm very worried. It it was a very small one. Oh God! In, in, in terms of the history of Earth, and 
so it's difficult to extrapolate back and say, well, the size of the initial body was such and such because then it ablates in the atmosphere. But okay. but it's been theorized that it was perhaps the size of a city bus about. Okay. So in the scheme of things, that's actually very small. And then there were a number of explosions as it was flying through the atmosphere and thousands of pieces fell. Most of them were tiny. Mm-hmm. There, there was one large piece that fell in the lake and you might remember at the time there were photographs of this frozen lake with a hole punched through it and there was a whole big expedition to go and recover it and divers and boats and everything and then they realized that the lake's actually super shallow and it was quite easy to to recover it reach down (laughs) somebody reached their arm through an ice hole (laughs) here it is (laughs) i remember that day so well and not for the obvious reasons of the video and and all of that it so happened again we were at the gem show and this was a couple of years before the fellow with the backpack story and I was up early that morning because we were doing a raffle to benefit some local charities in Tucson, where I live, at the Gem Show. And I, oh, I'm going to get up early and go down to the showroom and make sure everything's ready. People will be coming in for the prize drawing today. And I'm driving down the highway, and my phone just starts going, ding, ding, ding. I go, God, what's going on? Ding, ding. Just won't stop. Text, 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 coming in. And I was so concerned, I thought there was must be some kind of emergency that I pulled off the highway. And I look at my phone, and it goes, it goes, Jeff, have you heard the news? You're going to Russia. You're going to Russia. You're going to. Are you in Russia? Are you going to Russia? What NASA called? What? What on earth's going on? So I go. Oh, I better get to the showroom quickly. Drive to the showroom. Okay. The whole time I'm thinking, my friends have gone absolutely crazy. What on earth's going on? Fire up my laptop. See the news. Ah, oh, enormous fireball. And the the most interesting thing about this phenomenon to me is the amount of footage that we have. And it really shows what happens. It was a very shallow entry. Usually when, when there's a fireball associated with a potential meteorite, it's short. So it hits the atmosphere, lasts a few seconds, and it's over. This was a long, shallow flight and extremely well documented. Very well documented. I, I heard that part of the reason, is this true or maybe, maybe you heard this, that everyone in Russia has dash cams mm-hmm. on their cars, yes. partly because there's so much highway crime and banditry and people have dash cams to sort of protect themselves from that. As a result, there was tons of dash cam footage from random people's cars of this. And it made me think, God, everybody should have dash cams everywhere just in case there's a fireball. I know, right? I've thought about that several times. And if you if you look back in recent history at the fireball footage we have not counting Chelybins, there's hardly any of it. And one of the most famous ones is the Peekskill fireball that that produced a, a meteorite that hit a car in upstate New York in, in the early 90s. And I love that video because it, it was a Friday night and it's, it's football and there's a parent and and he's he's videotaping his son playing football and he's suddenly here, oh my God, look at that. And the camera goes up in the sky and the fireball's going boom and it's over. It's, it's so short-lived in most cases that people might have a camera and go, oh look, there's a fireball in the sky. Let me get my camera out and turned on and focus. Oh, it's over. But in Russia, exactly for the for the reason that you mentioned, because there's a, there's a lot of fraud and fake accidents and that kind of thing in Russia, and, and, and I, I love Russia and I've traveled extensively there. But yes, I've witnessed this kind of thing. I thought it was for drinking and driving, <laughs> but okay, that's me. So, so, so they could videotape their friends drinking and driving? Oh no, just because you know the idea is this. Uh, you know what? I'm about to say something that is just going to get me in so much trouble. Oh, go on, go for it, Chuck. I'm, I'm just saying, like you know, there's a lot of vodka drinking, right? And if if I know I'm drinking and driving, and I assume you're drinking and driving, I want a record because neither one of us are going to remember the accident. So. <laughs> I see. That's very forward thinking. Uh, yes, exactly. You so know. logical, Chuck. <laughs> Nobody else would have ever thought of that. Right. Actually, I mean, in addition to dash cams, we've now entered the phase of human history where everybody's got um, cell phones with cameras and video cameras. So I would imagine that in general, fireballs and things of that ilk are going to be much more documented from now on than they have been um, throughout history. I certainly hope so. And actually, that leads me to a question I, I'd like to ask your opinion on this. So if, if you think of UFO footage that we have going back to the 50s and 60s, it's always just terribly shaky. They go, oh, look, there's something in the sky. And they try and zoom in and it goes, oh, now I can't see anything. Now it seems that a lot of the modern world is walking around with an HD camera in its back pocket. Where's that definitive UFO Yeah, where's the really good now? UFO footage? Um, I, you know, See, you guys don't know 
but the deal is that the aliens actually ride around in fuzzy ships that shake around and exactly so that no matter how good your video is the result is a fuzzy orb shaking around on the screen did they did they tell you that it's ingenious well they told me right after right after the probe when you were drunk driving (laughs) is that was that recorded by the first comes the probe and then they have a conversation with you and they tell you listen this is why we did it all right all right can we stray on (laughs) can we stray on topic for a second I mean, I don't want to like. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't want to be, you know, be a buzzkill here. But let's uh, talk about meteorites just for a second. Um, in the future, how much do we have to worry about? I mean, you know, it's been said the dinosaurs didn't have a space program. We do have a space program. Does that mean that there's nothing to worry about? You know, for basically we've got this, uh, or is it still uh, a challenge, a tricky challenge in your view? Even though we have a space program, it's not, we don't necessarily have it in the bag that if we discovered a large object coming towards Earth, um, there's nothing to worry about. It's a significant threat, but I, I don't want to do any fear-mongering. I am an active supporter of Asteroid Day, which takes place June 30 every year, and that date was selected because it's the anniversary of the Tunguska event, which was this still somewhat puzzling uh, impact of sorts that occurred in Siberia in 1908 and many people don't recognize the name but when I say that's the supposed impact that flattened all the trees in that Siberia. was the last real big one that, that at least that hit over land that we know about it was that is that true there was another significant impact very significant in 1947 in eastern Siberia called Sikhotalin and that was an iron meteorite that also seems to have had a long, shallow flight similar to Chelyabinsk, but unlike Chelyabinsk, it was an iron meteorite, and it formed approximately 100 craters of varying sizes in Uh Siberia. So that is regarded as the largest meteorite impact in recorded history. And why 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 does space hate Siberia? If, if If you look at the globe and you think, why do so many meteorites land in Russia... And then look back and you go, wow, it's actually a really big target. Because if you turn the earth just that way, you go, actually, Russia takes up most of it. It's quite hard to miss. You could wonder why there are some meteorites, in fact, that didn't hit Russia. And maybe they've just got very bad (laughs) aim. Okay, so it's nothing nothing personal. No, I don't think so. But Russia's definitely got more than its fair share of, of impacts. In other words, no collusion. Yeah. Collusion. No collusion. No collusion. Yeah. And no more dash cams. So, 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 but anyway, so, so the threat in the future, we're not fear-mongering, but we're assessing here. What do you, it's what? very significant. There are about 200 known meteorite craters on Earth, ranging from recent to tens of millions of years old. And there were many more craters. These are the 200 that we know of. And we live on an active planet. Look at the moon, and you can see how frequently something gets hit. The moon doesn't have an atmosphere, and so everything of significant size that hits the moon makes a crater. Most meteorites that come to us here on Earth burn up in the atmosphere, at least partially. So the atmosphere protects us. It's a shield. Mm-hmm. And even so, there are likely many more impact sites on Earth that have never been discovered because they've been eroded. Right. Ooh, so Earth is ask- just active. There's erosion. There's vegetation. Mm-hmm. There's plate tectonics. And then there's the atmosphere filtering them out. So, yeah, the fact that we have, uh, how, how many craters have been identified? About 200. Yeah, that, that tells you over time there's been a lot of stuff. Yes. So and let me ask you, Mr. Astrobiologist, doctor, uh, sp- speaking of atmosphere, so the first impact then is the atmosphere itself. That has to be an impact itself. So now I'm just asking because it may make no sense when I'm done. Uh is there a collision that could be big enough that it actually creates a giant hole in the atmosphere itself? Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. It's believed that um, really large impacts do blow off some of the atmosphere. Um, and in fact, it's harder to get rid of an atmosphere of a planet the size of Earth, but that's probably part of the story of Mars and how Mars lost its atmosphere. Oh, really? When Mars was young, just like all the planets, it was being bombarded 
um, this, you know, what we call the heavy bombardment when the solar system was young. And a planet like Mars, because it has lower gravity, is more vulnerable to stuff getting blasted off into space. And so it's, it's not the only way Mars lost atmosphere, but we think probably it lost a significant amount of atmosphere just from big impacts blowing it off. It's harder to do on Earth because Earth is a big planet with a lot of gravity, but right. probably the largest ones do take some atmosphere off. And then, of course, you get to something like the moon-forming impact where you're melting half of Earth, and, and we're still trying to figure out what that would have done to the atmosphere, but it probably did a lot. Cool. So. Can, I, can I answer your question yes. in, in, a, in a demonstrative way? In 1999, I made my first trip to Russia, and I went to the Tamir Peninsula in northern Siberia, and I visited the Popigai Crater, which is one of the largest on Earth. It's 35 million years old, and it's 100 kilometers in diameter, which means you could fit Luxembourg into it four times. And it's so massive that when you're standing on the floor of the crater, you can't even tell that you're in a crater. You don't stand there and look around and go, wow, look at, look at the rim. Although I've done that in many craters on Earth. And the one that demonstrates that probably the best is, is the Ries-Nerdlingen crater in southern Germany, where you, you can stand at the center, and this crater is millions of years old, not as large, not as old as Papagai. And just at the horizon, you can see a, a little line all the way around as far as you can see. And that's the rim of the crater. And that's regarded as kind of medium smallish. So Papagai, so massive, so remote, the only way in and out is by helicopter. And we spent nine days on an expedition camped inside this crater. And the, the concept that you can't tell it's so large, you can't tell. You can only see it from a high-altitude photograph or space. That's the answer to your question. These sites exist on Earth, and yes, it's millions of years old, and yes, there seems to be a much lower incidence of very major impacts on Earth since the late heavy bombardment, but that doesn't mean we're not going to get crushed by another one. And we, sh we should be vig vigilant. If, if we don't do something about it. Yeah. I'm personally very glad we have a space program for many reasons. And one reason is because uh, someone's got to be on the case in the long run uh, to prevent another Papa guy from hitting. Because now that we're here, uh, that, that, that would not be pretty. <laughs> Indeed. I'm, yeah. I'm um, sensing a children's book in the making here. Yeah. Well, um, uh, f we are unfortunately out of time. This has been so much fun. I'd like to thank you, Jeff. Uh, uh, meteorite hunter Jeff Notkin for uh, joining us and uh, my co-host Chuck Nice and I'm David Grinspoon and you've been listening to Star Talk All-Stars. Thank you very much. Thank you.